0: Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him." When Herod the king heard heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you of Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and them from them what time the star had appeared. And, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Good to see all of you guys. Good afternoon. Hope you had a wonderful week. Let's all bow our heads and pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, we pray that you will now prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word today. Father, no matter what troubles, no matter what anxieties, no matter what frustrations that we have brought with us this afternoon, we ask that by your grace you would banish those things out of our minds so that we could be fully receptive, we could be fully prepared to receive everything that you want to speak into our hearts and minds today. So that as your servant Paul once said, we would be renewed in the transformation of our minds. So that we could discern what is good, what is right, what is pure. Father, we live in a world that distracts us all the time. And we pray that you would take that distraction out of this place. So that we could have clear focus. And therefore be able to receive all the blessings that you have stored up for us in Christ. That on this day we receive this word so that we could be changed to become more and more like your beloved son. Oh, Lord, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the things that you realize as you get older is that life can be very, very confusing. As you get older, one of the things that you discover is that life is filled with so many confusing uncertainties, so many confusing inconsistencies, and just moments of opaqueness where you are not aware of what's going on around you. One clear example of this that we see is Christmas. Yeah, Christmas. Think about it for just a moment. We live in a culture that tries to portray Christmas as this occasion where there is nothing but hope, nothing but joy, as we experience this nebulous, uh, ecstatic thing known as Christmas spirit that descends upon us, that therefore manifests in the forms of families getting together, having a wonderful time, complete strangers being unusually kind to one another, and a growing sense of optimism and joy that is just pervading our communal social psyche. But then if you linger long enough in Christmas, you then see another side of it that isn't so bright, that isn't so nice you see family members at a dinner table literally choking one another as they reopened old wounds from the past. You read stories on the news or you watch it on the internet of complete strangers attacking each other in the parking lots on the mall because of the stress of holiday shopping just gets the better of them. And then there's this notion of optimism that's supposed to be around because of Christmas spirit. So many today don't feel it and in its place, they instead feel sorrow, loneliness, depression, and pain. I find it so interesting... That a holiday, which is supposed to evoke so much joy, so much hope, also happens to be the same time where most people are in society are incredibly sorrowful and full of depression. A couple weeks ago, I came across an article on the Psychology Today website, and the title of the article, (laughs) Why People Get Depressed at Christmas. And the article really captures the kind of bipolar nature of how we as a society get so up and down when it comes to Christmas. Take a listen to this quote that comes from this article. Quote, We are told that Christmas, for Christians, should be the happiest time of year, an opportunity to be joyful and grateful with family, friends, and colleagues. Yet, according to the National Institute of Health, Christmas is the time of year that people experience a high incidence of depression. Hospitals and police forces report high incidences of suicide and attempted suicide. Psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals report A significant increase in patients complaining about depression. One North American survey reported that 45% of respondents dreaded the festive season. And the question is, why? Why? That is the question, after all, is it not? And given that we're currently in the Christmas or Advent sermon series, it's a question that's very relevant to us. Why are we as a society... So up and down, so bipolar, so contradicting and confused when it comes to this time known as Christmas. Well, I believe we can understand that question and answer it as we take a closer look at the third gift that the wise men gave the baby Jesus, which is the gift of myrrh. We've been looking in this series, the three gifts that the wise men gave. Two weeks ago, we looked at gold. Last week, we looked at frankincense. Today, we come to an end by looking at the third and final gift, which is the gift of myrrh. And I believe... That as we take a careful look at the significance of the gift of myrrh, not only can we understand the kind of chaotic confusion of what it comes with Christmas being around, but furthermore, I believe that when we take a more considerable look at the meaning of myrrh and what it signifies about Jesus, it can help clarify the confusion and chaos of life itself. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today about myrrh. First, I want to talk about the confusing gift of myrrh the confusing gift of myrrh, number two, the common goal of myrrh, and finally, the ultimate rejection of myrrh, the confusing gift of myrrh, the common goal of myrrh, and finally, the ultimate rejection of myrrh, okay, let's jump right in, first, the confusing gift of myrrh, let me ask you guys a question, have you ever gotten a a Christmas gift, or maybe any gift for that matter, to where after you get it and you open it, instead of feeling grateful, instead of feeling happy, you are just utterly confused, Have you ever got a gift like that? You know, like, oh, thank you for this gift. And you're like, huh? (laughs) You ever have a gift like that? If you were here last week in the sermon that I preached last week, you would know that I made that mistake many times with my poor wife. One Christmas, I decided to give her a gift, which I thought was really cool, you know, too cool for school kind of thing. It was a devotional book written by one of my favorite Puritans, John Newton. It was different portions of his devotional Book that he wrote years ago, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a perfect gift. Sarah's going to love it. So I wrap it up, I give it to her, and I say, Merry Christmas, honey. She goes, Oh, thanks, honey. Notice the small, but she's like, okay. She opens it up, and here I am, imagining in my head, oh, thank you. I've been waiting for this. She just looks at it with an inquisitive look, you know, and then she says, What is this? <laughs> have you ever had that happen to you? Of course you have. Because this is something everyone struggles with. Every now and then, we are all victims of receiving a not-so-flattering gift. In fact, it's such a common problem that even the Lord Jesus himself was a victim as well. What do you mean? Well, let me explain. Out of the three gifts that the wise men gave the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the third gift, myrrh, was perhaps the most confusing and perhaps even the most downright offensive gift that Jesus received that night. Why? Why? Especially if you look at it from the standpoint of his parents. Well, why is that? If you did a scan, if you just did a survey in the Bible of the different descriptions of the usages of myrrh in the Bible, you would know why it was such a controversial gift. Let me read to you a portion, three passages of scripture that all highlight the different usages of myrrh in the days of the Bible. Can we have those three passages up? First, there's Esther chapter 2. Listen to this description of how myrrh is being used in this story. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatment, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace bedroom, right, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. Next passage, Proverbs chapter 7. You're the one I was looking for. I came out to find you and here you are. My bed is spread with beautiful blankets, with colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Let's enjoy each other's caresses. For my husband is not home. He is away on a long trip. He has taken a wallet full of money with him and won't return until later this month. And then finally, John 19. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes, all following Jewish burial customs. They wrapped Jesus' body with spices in long sheets, of linen cloth. Now from these passages we can see how versatile myrrh was in the ancient world but perhaps what caught your attention more so than that was how myrrh was used in almost polar opposite situations different situations that are complete opposites of each other. I mean, think about it. In those first two passages, how is myrrh being used? Myrrh is being used in a context where the body experiences some of the most incredible, blissful pleasures it can go through, namely sexual intimacy. But then we see another situation where myrrh is being used, where the body experiences the worst possible suffering it could ever go through, decomposition. Isn't that interesting? Here you have two situations, two experiences of the human body, incredible bliss, sexual intimacy, Incredible suffering, decomposition, two experiences of the human body. that have nothing in common, and yet they're unified by this one particular item known as myrrh. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that in the ancient world, that when someone gave you myrrh, it was a very confusing gift. It it just conveyed a very confused state of mind to the point, like, what is it that you're trying to tell me here by giving me this myrrh? I mean, can you imagine if you're married? Jesus, his earthly mother, and you witness these wise men giving of all things myrrh to your child, an item that is used in the context of sexual intimacy or something in the use of burying a dead body. You know, can you imagine how Mary must have felt as she saw these wise men giving this gift to her son? At best, she's going to be confused, weirded out. At worst, she's going to be downright angry and offended, right, which therefore begs the question, what in the world were these wise men thinking, yeah, wise men, what kind of wisdom is going through their head to where they think, hey, why don't we give Jesus an item that was used either to promote sexual eroticism or maybe death? What kind of thinking is going through their minds? Well, to answer that question, let me go to my next point, the common goal of myrrh. Now, it is true, myrrh is a very confusing gift to the person who is receiving it, but for Mary, This is not a foreign object. This is not something she's unfamiliar. In fact, quite the contrary. Even though it is a confusing item to be receiving, it is an object that she herself would have personally known throughout all her life. How do I know that? Well, here's a little trivia. Did you guys know that Mary is actually named after the same Hebrew root word as myrrh is? Yeah myrrh and mary sound somewhat alike and that's not a coincidence because those two words are derived from the same hebrew root word and you know what that hebrew root word is root root, root word is sorry i did that in the first sermon i was like root word is it's the hebrew root word mara m-a-r-a mara now for those of you who grew up listening bible stories in sunday school That word should be very, very familiar to you, right? Because it comes out of a very famous Old Testament story that we love telling our little kids. But just on the off chance that you guys don't remember it, and shame on you for not listening in Sunday school, let me read to you the actual story in the Old Testament where you come across that word. This is Hebrew, excuse me, not Hebrews, Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Here we encounter the word Mara and Naomi actually defines what that word means. What does it mean? Bitter, right? It literally means in our modern parlance, helplessly bitter, hopelessly bitter, or bitterly hopeless. To be Mara or to suffer from Mara means that you are someone who is so full with sorrow, so full with depression, so full with angst that you feel bitterly helpless and hopeless. That is Mara. So with that in mind, here's the question. Why did the people who discovered myrrh, why did they decide to associate this item that ends up becoming a gift for Jesus with this idea of bitter hopelessness. Why in the world would the people who discovered myrrh for the first time say, hey, I know, let's name it after something that represents bitter hopelessness. Why? Well, the most common answer to that question is because it tastes bitter. For those of you who have the fortune or really the misfortune of ever tasting raw myrrh in its natural form will come to discover that it's one of the most bitter flavors on the planet. In fact, some people say it's so bitter that it actually induced vomiting, right? That's how disgusting it is. That's how nasty that stuff is. And so the, the reasoning is, oh, I know why these people named it myrrh. Because of the actual taste itself. It's symbolic or it, it, it represents the way it naturally tastes. Now, of course, there is some reasoning behind that to where it makes sense. Of course, yeah, that must be one of the reasons why they called it myrrh or why they named it after this thing called mara. But I don't think that's the main reason or, in fact, the ultimate reason. Why? Well, let me explain it by putting it this way. You guys ever come across that phrase, when life throws you lemons, just make lemonade? You've heard that? Hey, when life throws lemons at you or when life gives you lemons, you just got to make lemonade, Depending on who they, who's saying it, they might add the little, you got to make lemonade, baby, right? This kind of hopeful optimism, right? That phrase was actually coined by a man by the name of Andrew Carnegie, who's considered the father of self-help books. And that phrase originated in his book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And the whole message behind that phrase basically goes like this. Look. Life is going to get bad. In fact, you might be in a bad situation where life seems so hopeless, so helpless. But you know what? Don't give up. Stick it out. Press on. No retreat. No surrender. If you just stick it through and if you work hard and you don't give up, you can make something wonderful come out of it. You just got to see the silver lining behind every storm cloud. You got to see the sun behind the shadows. You just got to press on and persevere and just don't quit. Don't give up, right? That's what the underlying message is behind that phrase, that when life gets you down, that when life feels hopeless and helpless, you got to summon within yourself the strength and the optimism to try and overcome it and manufacture your own sense of hope, even when it seems like it's so hopeless. Well, guess what? That's the same underlying mindset that is behind the usage of myrrh. Think about it. Here you have a substance that is naturally bitter, naturally disgusting to where you have no desire to interact with it, no desire to to, to engage it in any way. And yet, if you keep pressing forward, if you keep working with it, if you keep interacting with it, if if you force yourself to just press on and work with this thing, what results? You can create something sweet something wonderful, something delicate to the senses, to where it gives off this wonderful aroma, the kind of aroma that can promote intimacy between two people to create sexual chemistry. Or maybe... It can alleviate some of the sorrows of mourning over the death of your loved one because now if you have that burning or if you have that on top of the dead body, you're not so repulsed by your loved one giving off the odor that they are through their decomposing body. So yes, myrrh becomes the symbolic item that represents mankind's ability to overcome whatever tragedies, whatever sorrows, no matter how helpless, no matter how hopeless. Yes, if man will just press on, They can overcome these things that seem so utterly hopeless. You see, that is the common goal that is behind myrrh. Myrrh, in the instance of sexual intimacy, in the context of using it for a dead body, both have the same underlying idea that you can create something good out of something bad. That you can create hope out of a hopeless situation. That you can have lemonade when life throws lemons at you. And indeed, if you think about it, that makes total sense why the wise men gave this gift to the baby Jesus. I mean, how else would they express their faith in Jesus that somehow, way, this Jesus is going to take all the things that's wrong with this world, all the things that make us so bitterly helpless and hopeless, that somehow he's going to reverse all of it, change all of it, and do with it in all his glorious ways and create something hopeful, something so optimistic, something to which we can be joyful of instead of depressed. Yes, indeed, that is what the underlying motive is for these wise men in giving this gift to Jesus because they are displaying their confidence that Jesus is somehow able to take the worst things in life and from it create the best things in life. And indeed, that is what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that Jesus does come, and he has come, to take the worst thing in life, the worst things in life that make us feel so bitterly helpless and hopeless, to where we can end up feeling hopeful. But the way he does it is in a manner that none of us would have expected, none of us would have anticipated, which we see so preeminently in the way in which he interacts with myrrh itself. What do I mean by that? Well, to explain, let me go to my final point, the ultimate rejection of myrrh. Now, this is church, guys, okay? So let me ask you an honest question, and don't lie, even in your hearts, in your brain, because God can listen to your brain, right? Let me ask you this honest question. Have you ever gotten a gift, maybe around Christmas time, and you got it and you're like, man, I'm going to trade this with something else, right? You ever done that before? Maybe it's at an office Christmas party or maybe it's at this white elephant you're going to do in a couple hours with you young people, right? <laughs> I just gave you this idea now, right? You're going to see a gift, you're like, oh, thanks, dude. But you know as soon as you have that opportunity, you're going to go back to the mall, you're going to go back to the vendor where they bought it so you can get something in exchange, Right? You've done that before? I've done that before. Actually, no, I've never done that. I would never do anything like that. But you guys done that and you feel so guilty? You ever feel so bad? Well, guess what, guys? I have good news for you. You don't have to feel guilty. In the name of Jesus, I declare, don't feel bad, don't feel guilty. You want to know why? Because Jesus himself did the same exact thing. Jesus received a gift that he didn't want and he said, I don't want it. And you're thinking, what are you talking about? Where in the Bible do you ever see Jesus being given a gift and he just rejects it? It's there. Let me show you. This is Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter, uh, where is it? Mark chapter 15, starting in the 22nd verse. Listen to what it says. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldier nailed him to the cross. Here we see the only other instance where Jesus is being offered myrrh again. And what does he do? No thank you. I don't want it take it back, right? I don't want it. Why? Why is Jesus rejecting this gift that these Roman guards are giving to him, right? Why is he not taking it? Well, the common answer among Bible scholars is that, well, Jesus didn't want to alleviate any of the pain he was going through. You see, one of the other characteristics of myrrh is that it had the chemical property of being an analgesic. An analgesic, which is basically what advil tylenol aspirin is it it was a substance that people used to alleviate pain and bruises and and little cuts and 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 pain that people went through right and so the hypothesis is, is that jesus seeing that it had this medicinal property he didn't want to minimize the pain he didn't want to have any sort of mercy put upon him because he was there not to receive mercy he was there to take on the full weight of god's wrath For the full weight of sin upon him. So, of course, no, he's not going to take this act of grace, this act of charity, even if it's from the Roman guards. No, he wants to take the full weight of sin upon him because he is the sin bearer, right? That's how one theologian by the name of John MacArthur explains it. Listen to what he says in his book. He writes this, quote, Before they nailed Jesus to the cross, the soldiers offered him this bitter drink. This bitter substance was myrrh, which acts as a mild narcotic. The soldiers may have offered it for its numbing effect just before they drove the nails through the flesh. When Jesus tasted what it was, he spat it out. He did not want his senses numb. He had come to the cross to be a sin-bearer, and he would feel the full effect of the sin he bore. He would endure the full measure of its pain. His heart was still steadfastly set on doing the will of the Father, and he would not ties his senses before he had accomplished all his work no doubt absolutely true. No doubt. Part of the reason why Jesus did not want to take in this substance is because, indeed, he wanted to take the full weight of sin. But I believe there's another reason, a more profound reason why Jesus rejected myrrh. And what could it be? Well, let's go back to those three passages of scripture that we had referenced earlier, Esther, Proverbs, and John, okay? Take a look at these passages, as I'm about to go over with you, but consider what I said in my second point. What did I say my second point? That myrrh was named myrrh because it represented this underlying idea that man, when life throws lemons at us, we can make lemonade. Mankind is able to overcome whatever hopeless, helpless situation that we face. We can just overcome it by our own strength. We can create hope in hopeless moments, right? Well, with that in mind, consider that idea with these three passages. First, let's look at this Esther passage. Here you have an incident where women are using myrrh But let me ask you, what real hope are these women experiencing? Is the myrrh in any way alleviating the fact that they are now sex slaves of a tyrant king? (laughs) Does it? Probably not, right? Go to the Proverbs 7 passage. Does the usage of myrrh here in any way alleviate the fact that this woman is about to betray her husband and tear apart her marriage, tear apart her family, and this man's family that she's trying to seduce is there real hope in that is that hopeful at all or what about john 19 go back to john 19 here you see myrrh being used in the context of a dead body but let me ask you if you lost someone someone you deeply love right and you just put nice smelling fragrances on their dead body to alleviate the the stench of their decomposing body is that really giving you any sense of hope at all not really right If there is hope, it's more of an empty hope, is it not? You see, one of the things that we have to understand is that Jesus is really trying to challenge us some of the assumptions that we have about ourselves and what we're capable of. By Jesus spitting out the myrrh, by Jesus not accepting the myrrh, he's trying to tell us two things. You know what they are? Number one, in spite of what you think, in spite of what you believe about yourself, you are not capable of inspiring yourself with hope in hopeless situations. You are not capable of that. It doesn't care how much positive self-thinking you do. It doesn't matter what kind of books that you expose yourself to, what gurus you come under in their teaching, right? It doesn't matter how much positive energy or positive self-reflection you try to do. Jesus is saying by spitting out that myrrh, you need to get rid of that idea. You need to reject this idea that when life throws lemons, you are capable of making lemonade. That you are capable of just making all things better. Instead, Jesus says, and this is the second thing that he's trying to teach us, hope in me. Don't hope in yourself and your ability to see the silver lining of things. Hope in me. Don't look to the myrrh, which represents your ability, to overcome hopeless situations look to the cross which represents me and my ability to help you out of your hopeless situations see jesus is essentially saying you cannot make lemonade out of the lemons of life only i am capable of such things why because of what the gospel teaches us what does the gospel teaches us the gospel teaches us that God loved us so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could do the one thing that no other human being will ever be able to do or could ever do in previous history, which is what? Jesus alone was able to bring hope to the most hopeless, helpless situation of all, death. Jesus brought hope to the most helpless, hopeless situation that you and I will ever face. He brought hope against hopelessness of death. That is what the gospel teaches us. And the way that he did it was not only by dying on the cross for our sins, but by rising again from the dead as our resurrected one. Do you guys know that when Jesus rose from the dead, that wasn't like his kind of like, ta-da, look what I could do, I'm God, right? No. Jesus rose from the dead to show you what he did for you. Like we say easily, yeah, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. But did you know he also rose for you as well? Right? It's not that he just died for me and he rose for himself to show off that he's God. No, he died on the cross for you, but he also rose from the dead for you. Why? To show you that the greatest threat against you, that the greatest thing that is the cause of you to be hopeless and helpless, death is no longer your threat because he is the first fruits. His resurrection is a sneak preview of what's coming your way. When you face death, you might be hopeless you may be helpless but if you are a follower of jesus you shouldn't feel that way because death doesn't end right death doesn't end you because when you die and you're in christ like jesus you rise again from the dead listen to how the apostle paul puts it in first corinthians 15 starting in verse 55 he writes "O oh death where is your victory O oh death where is your sting for the sin is a sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 58. He says, Be strong and immovable. What's He saying? Be hopeful. Never, ever despair. Never, ever feel like you are helpless. And that you have no hope. Be strong. Why? Because Jesus overcame the greatest threat against you. The greatest helpless, hopeless situation headed your way. He overcame that by rising again from the dead. And the underlying implication that Paul is saying is this. Look, if Jesus loved you so much to where he nullified, he minimized, he neutralized the greatest threat of death against you. Do you not think that he loves you enough to where he would undermine other threats that are not as threatening as death, whether it be something going on in your personal life. Amen. Listen, I know for many of you guys, there are moments in your life where you feel feel genuinely hopeless. You feel helpless, like as if your life is being threatened, even though it isn't. But it feels that way. It feels like death to you, right? Maybe something's going on at work. And you just anticipate a pink slip coming your way, and you have no idea what you could do to feed your family, to pay your bills, or to keep the roof over your head. Maybe you're in school right now, and you just know that your grades that you're going to see in a couple weeks are hopelessly dooming you, right? And you have no idea what you could do. If you're on probation, if you get kicked out of school, what are you going to do now? Or maybe you're in a situation where you have family members where, you know, no matter how hard you try, there's this, this distance, there's this chaos, there's this volatility, And you can't even see you guys ever reconciling and ever coming back together like you used to be. There's so many things in this life that can make you feel so helpless and so helpless. And yet, Scripture says, don't be that way. Don't feel that way. Why? Because the Jesus who conquered the greatest threat against you, the greatest helpless, hopeless situation of all, he conquered that for you. How much more will he not help you conquer those things? How much more will he not be with you and minimize those threats if he got rid of the greatest threat against you? You see? You know, psychologists tell us that people who tend to be very helpless-minded, hopeless-minded, and always feeling like their life is doomed, they think that way because they tend to do two things. They call it permanence and pervasiveness. Permanence and pervasiveness. What is permanence and what's pervasiveness? Well, basically, it's what people do who tend to look at life as half-glass empty. You know, there are two ways, according to psychologists, that you can look at life. You can look at it as half-glass empty, half-glass full, pessimistic, and optimistic. Well, they say that people who are pessimists, half-glass empty people, do this thing known as permanence and pervasiveness. Let me give you an example of what it is. What is an example of permanence? Well, permanence is when someone, for example, is looking for a job, right? They need to get a job. They've been unemployed for a while, right? And during this season, which is the lowest time when companies are hiring, they're just getting no upon no upon no. A person who struggles with permanence, they're going to interpret that situation as this. No one will ever hire me. I'm in this permanent situation where I'm just unemployable, right? That's permanence. Rather than having a more temporary mindset, which is what an optimist would say, who would think more like, you know, this is the season where most companies aren't hiring anyway, so I just won't get a job now. I won't get a job this month. No, a permanent-minded person would be like, no, I'll never get a job. I'll never get the opportunity to make a living kind of thing. What about pervasiveness? Pervasiveness is when a person looks at a situation and they universalize it. So, for example, let's say a girl wants to get married, and she's in a relationship with a guy, right? And she just knows just by the way she's reading him, he has no intention of putting a ring on it, right? And she knows that he's going to dump her eventually. In fact, maybe tomorrow, right? A girl who thinks pervasively will think, no guy will ever marry me. I'm just so unlovable. I'm just so untouchable, right? It's a pervasive attitude rather than just having more of a situational attitude where, like, she would say, this guy doesn't want me? Shoot, his loss, right? Look at me. Look how hot I am. Look how much of a cool catch I am, right? That is a person who thinks more situationally. Now, here's the interesting thing. According to research, these psychologists do, they say that being more pessimistic or half glass empty is not more objectively true. It's not more uh, realistic to the way life really is. You see, when people ask pessimists, why are you always looking on the downside? Why are you always so, so gloomy? You know what they say? They typically say, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm just trying to look at the world the way it really is. But actually, research shows that that's actually not true. Being pessimistic, being half glass empty, is not more objectively true than being a half glass full person. In fact, they've done studies to show this. In fact, furthermore, people who are more optimistic tend to see life more accurately. And not only that, they're much happier. Hey. But here's the interesting thing. Psychologists say that you can live life optimistically most of, in most situations... Which means life is not as bad as we interpret it to be, except when it comes to one thing in life. You know what that is? Death. (laughs) Death. No matter how optimistic you are, no matter how good you are at trying to see the brighter things in life, death is the one thing. No matter how much you try to look at it, no matter how much you try to play with it in your mind, no matter how much you try to be positive about it, you can never escape the permanence and pervasiveness Which means no matter how uplifting you think you are as a person, you can never overcome the inherent hopelessness and helplessness that death evokes. Except if you have faith in Jesus, right? See, that's what makes the gospel good news. Because of the fact that Jesus was able to take the one thing in life that really is pervasive, really is permanent, and therefore really is hopeless and helpless. If he's able to get you out of that, if you have faith in him as Lord and Savior... Do you not think that he would also be with you in moments that are not permanent, not pervasive? How can you not have any faith that your God is with you in those moments? See, this is my challenge to you, NCF. There are things in your life that you are going to be tempted to think is a permanent condition, is a pervasive condition, and therefore doom yourself in a state of helplessness and, and gloom to where you just want to say, I am Mara. I'm not Peter, I'm not John, I'm not, you know, Charlie, I'm not Hugh, I am Mara. No. If you are in Christ, you have hope. If you remember the gospel, you are a person at peace. See, if there's anything that the gift of myrrh is trying to teach us, it's this. Stop believing in yourself, represented by the myrrh. Start trusting in the one who is the true hope, represented by the cross. The cross, not myrrh, is the hope. Myrrh is not trying to get you to hope in it. Myrrh is trying to point you to the one who gives hope that myrrh cannot provide. Do you see that? See, the way that you overcome the sense of helplessness and hopelessness that you will face in life is by constantly remembering the gospel. The gospel. Just in case you need one final booster shot of a reminder of what the gospel is, take a listen to how the Apostle Paul beautifully describes it in Romans chapter 8. Let's have it up there. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more about the things in our life, the situations in our life, to where we are so tempted to cry out like Naomi, I am Mara, I am bitterly hopeless. Oh, Father, would you help us to remember the significance of this gift that was given to your son, the gift of myrrh. Father, it's so easy for us to believe that we are able to get ourselves out of our hopeless moments. That we, if we just persevered, can make lemonade out of the lemons of life that are thrown against us. But, oh Lord, as the sorrows that we wrestle with now carry over into the next year, Lord, help us not begin the new year with the faulty assumption that we can trust in ourselves, that we are capable of saving ourselves, that we are able to overcome all the things that we find so overwhelmingly hopeless. Lord, we do not need to trust in ourselves. We need to trust in you. And we need to have faith that what you did on the cross is what saves us, not what we do with murder. And so, God, would you enable us to believe that, especially as we seek to start off this new year with hope. Hope that will go well beyond after the holiday seasons are over. Hope that will carry on even to the day in which you summon us back into your presence face to face. Father, we live in a world that is in desperate need of this message especially during this political, economic, and cultural, and war-torn crisis that we are living in now. Lord, may your people truly exemplify this season of hope that goes on well beyond this holiday season. Oh God, would you help us to be people of hope so that we can carry out our holy orders of being a blessing to the world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name.